Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're in our Words of the Buddha Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha helping you to understand his teachings. As we do, we start off each class session with meditation and that's to help prepare the mind for the learning because as you learn the Buddha's teachings, it's important that you retain them because you're not believing the Buddha's teachings, but instead you're learning them so that then you can reflect on them and then you can practice them in daily life and see the truth for yourself that they actually work. So by doing some meditation before class, it helps to kind of clear out the mind and prepare it to actually learn and retain the teachings during the class. And you can use the same methodology before you read, before you go into important meetings, before you have maybe have a certain conversation that's going to be particularly challenging for you. You could always implement some meditation ahead of time in order to prepare your mind for what's about to come. You don't have to only meditate in the morning and night or morning, midday, and evening. You can kind of do these little top-ups where you're kind of topping up the mind and adding some extra training. After our meditation, what we're going to be doing is opening up to study the chapters of this book, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden, Walking the Path with the Buddha, Volume 2. In this book, there's an extract of specific teachings from the Buddhist teachings that are in the Pali Canon. These are translated into English, and there's a whole series of books that we're going to be exploring in this program over many weeks and months. In these books, we cover 10 chapters each week, where students all over the world are reading these chapters and then coming to class to discuss them and study them and ask questions about them. If you don't have a version of this book, it's okay because we will get this posted into our Facebook group, YouTube, and Zoom so that you can actually download this book. It's completely free. You can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and then in the upper right corner, you'll see the link for free download of books. In there, you can either download the PDF or you can go to Amazon and order the printed copy or you can take the PDF and just print it yourself if you like. In this book, what you're gonna find is this extract of the Buddhist teachings, and then you're gonna see the reference that goes back to the original, because the original is very long, and these chapters have extracted various pieces of those long discourses and put them into individual chapters. So you can use that reference to do that. And then under that, you'll see explanations or commentary that I've provided to help you understand what the Buddha was teaching. His words are quite clear, 
But there are certain things that you might need to know about other parts of his teachings in order to understand that specific teaching that you're looking at. So when I write the explanations, I assume that somebody doesn't have any knowledge whatsoever of any other teachings that the Buddha has taught. And I try to explain it in a way that if that's the first time you've ever seen any teaching of the Buddha, it would make sense to you based on what he said and based on what I'm sharing. So we're going to be exploring these after meditation. And if you haven't read these yet, because this is your first session with us, or you've been with us before and you just haven't had a chance to read, we're going to be actually reading these chapters during the class. The students will be able to volunteer to read. If you're in Zoom, you'll be able to do that and help us in the class by you reading a chapter and then I'll teach it afterwards. There's two chapters that I'm going to read this week, which is chapters 25 and 29, because I'm going to read it and teach as I go, because it's a very detailed teaching and I'll make sure that I teach it. But all the other chapters will need volunteers for. So you can volunteer to read the chapter out loud in class because we're going to be doing chapters 21 through chapters 30 this week. So thank you all for joining. Really pleased that you're here. Let's go ahead and start with our meditation, just a, a short little meditation to kind of top up the mind. I won't even do very much guidance. And then afterwards, we'll dive into exploring the Buddhist teachings through studying the Pali Canon in English. So go ahead and take your seat if you're going to do a seated position. Make your lower body comfortable and your hands and arms comfortable in your lap. Not luxurious, not painful, but comfortable. The upper body should be nice and erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during meditation. Then close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. The breath is the present moment. You'd like to just breathe in, experiencing the full breath in through the nose and out through the nose. Your breathing is going to be different than the guidance that I'm giving, and that's okay. This is just here to remind you to breathe in. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation, and then I'll be back with some light guidance to help you out.
नपमोर्गवतो हर हतो संभूत सपमोर्गवतो हर हतो संभूत स नपमोर्गवतो हर हतो संभूत सीतिपीसो महकवा हमूत चरण सामुनो सखातोरो कावितो अनु तेरो भूरीसा नमसाती सातातावा मानुसनं तो भगवाती okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. The breath is your anchor. You would like to fixate the mind on the sound of the breath. or the sensation of air moving into the nose this is the present moment breathing in and out as the mind wanders during meditation develop mindfulness where you're aware that the mind is off the breath Then when you notice that whatever thought you're having cut that off let it go and bring the mind back to the breath the present moment breathing in and out I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work to focus the mind on the breath
second part of our class where we study the words of the Buddha. So this week we were in chapters 21 through 30 and if you've read these ahead of time that's great you'll be able to ask any questions that you had that came up during your reading. If for some reason you haven't had a chance to read these that's okay we'll be reading them right here in class and you'll be able to ask questions or get understanding of the Buddhist teachings by studying the words of the Buddha. That's just so, 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 so important in terms of attaining enlightenment in the way that the Buddha taught. In order to attain enlightenment in the way that the Buddha taught, somebody would need to have access to his teachings. That's a main criteria of actually attaining enlightenment. So the Pali Canon is organized in these 45 large volumes and the average person doesn't have access to all of those. So what this book series does is extracts key teachings, 
helping you to kind of refine what you're looking at. So rather than looking at 10, 20, 30 topics in one particular discourse, you can actually really uh, refine down to a few paragraphs or a page or two of what the Buddha was actually teaching. So it really allows the mind, like laser-like focus, focus in on very key teachings of the Buddha. So over the course of these 13 books, we have the ability to look at the Buddhist words and really study what he actually taught and understand what he didn't teach as well. So that that way you can see this path to enlightenment very clearly. You can learn, you can reflect, you can practice and walk this path with the Buddha towards the enlightened mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So let me open up things to all of you. We have Nick and Bossom who are moderators today. And those of you that are joining us in Zoom, if you would like to volunteer to read some chapters, that would be great. And as a class, we'll go through, have a student read the chapter, and then I'll teach it for you guys and open up it to any questions that you guys might have. So I'll just turn things over to you guys. Okay, let's start with Allie or chapter 21, please. Chapter 21, Seeing Non-Self with Correct Wisdom. Monks, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volutional formation, choice, decision are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is discontentness. What is discontentness is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as really is with correct wisdom thus this is not mine so when one see this thus as it really is with correct wisdom one hold no more view concerning the future when one hold no more view concerning the future one has no more stubborn craving when one has no more stubborn craving the minds become free from strong feelings towards form, feeling, perception, volution, formation, choices, decisions, and consciousness, and is liberated from the taint by non-clinging. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being liberated, by being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attain Nibbana, enlightenment. One understand, destroy is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this stage of existence. Nice. Thank you, Ali. Appreciate that. All right. So here in chapter 21 of volume 2, what we're seeing is the Buddha is talking about the five aggregates, which is form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. Volitional formations are the choices or decisions, and the consciousness is the mind. When he talks about form, this is like physical form. What he's really describing here are the five collections or the five elements or the five aggregates that make up a living being. So we all have physical form, we have feelings, we have certain perceptions. Perceptions are the kind of the beliefs or opinions uh, that may or may not be true. 
volitional formations, our choices, our decisions, and the consciousness is the mind. So with these five aggregates, we are a living being, just like an animal. An animal has all five of these aggregates as well. What he's saying here is that if you remember back to chapters 1 through 10, there he was pointing to the Four Noble Truths, and he was talking about discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination, and the path leading forward to eliminating discontentedness. And when he describes discontentedness, he says clinging or holding on to form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness is discontentedness, essentially existing in human form or existing as a living being, an unenlightened being is going to experience discontentedness. And it's because our mind doesn't understand that universal truth of impermanence that we cause our own discontentedness. So here he's making the statement that this physical form is impermanent. The feelings that we have and experience in the mind are impermanent. They're not permanent. The perceptions, the beliefs, the opinions we have are not permanent. The choices and decisions we make are not permanent. And the mind itself is not permanent, right? So if we cling to these things, expecting them to be permanent, if we cling to our feelings, if we cling to our beliefs, our opinions, if we cling to our decisions, if we cling to the mind, then the mind's going to experience discontentedness. So that's where he says, what is impermanent is discontentedness because the unenlightened mind is going to cling on to these things. It's going to crave, desire, be attached, wanting permanence when they are all impermanent. This is essentially describing the universal truth of impermanence and the universal truth of discontentedness. That's the first two universal truths. But then he goes on to add the third universal truth. What is discontentedness is non-self. So the universal truth of non-self is that there is no permanent self. This physical body isn't who we are. This isn't the self. These feelings that we experience in the mind is not the self. These perceptions, these volitional formations, this consciousness is not the self. When the mind is experiencing discontentedness, either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, this is not the self. This is not who you are as a being. These are just impermanent things that are coming and going, right? So they can't be the permanent self because they're impermanent. So he says, what is discontentedness is non-self. It's not the self. When you experience anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, happiness, excitement, elation, that is not the self. That is not who you are as a person. These are just impermanent feelings that are coming and going based on impermanent conditions. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. So the Buddha is saying you should see this with correct understanding, with correct insight, with correct wisdom. That what is discontentedness and what is impermanent, this is not mine. So this doesn't belong to me. This physical form, these feelings, 
perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. This is none of this is the self. Even though we walk around in the unenlightened state, falsely thinking, falsely believing, mistakenly misunderstanding, having this misperception, having this delusion, having this ignorance that this physical body and mind is the self, the Buddha is saying, no, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Okay? So being able to see that clearer and clearer and then practicing in a way where you eliminate the self is really important. That's something we can talk about if you guys would like. When one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. So if you understand that none of this stuff is you, who you are, then anything that happens in the past, you don't have any more views. You don't hold on to it. You don't cling to the pleasant experiences. You don't cling to the painful experiences. You don't cling to the experiences that are neither painful nor pleasant. When one holds on to no more views concerning the past, one holds on to no more views concerning the future, right? Same thing, not having anticipation or expectation of pleasant things happening in the future, bringing the mind into the present moment, right? So when one holds no more views concerning the future, so we've eliminated the mind longing for the past and we've eliminated it longing for the future, one has no more stubborn craving. So that craving, desire, attachment, where the mind's longing and yearning with a strong eagerness for the past and for the future can be eliminated, that stubborn craving, because that's what's causing the discontentedness is the craving, desire, attachment. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings towards form. So when you're not craving and clinging, holding on to this form, then you won't experience these strong feelings that if you know you stump your toe, for example, you won't look at it as, oh, I stumped my toe because now that's mine, but that toe isn't mine. It doesn't belong to me. That physical body is not me. I stumped the toe and sure, the mind is feeling pain, but this pain is not me. I'm not holding on to this pain. I'm not clinging to it. So therefore, it doesn't cause agitation or any kind of frustration in the mind. You just look at it as, hmm, I stumped the toe. This pain I'm experiencing is impermanent. It will leave. I just need to kind of work through it for the next few moments until it's gone, right? But if you hold on craving, desiring, attaching pleasantness with this form and always expecting to never experience pain, then you're going to have these strong feelings that arise. Anytime the body's in physical pain, the mind's craving comfort and it doesn't like this pain and now it become agitated or angry because the body's not feeling and experiencing permanent comfort. So let go of that desire for permanent comfort and realize that the body's going to sometimes experience pain. That's the impermanent nature of the physical form. Same thing with feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. When we let go of craving certain feelings, holding on to certain perceptions, 
holding on to our choices and decisions, holding on to this mind craving permanence, when we let all that stuff go, then we let go of the strong feelings because the strong feelings of discontentedness are no longer produced because the craving for permanence towards these five aggregates is eliminated. And once that's done, one is then liberated from the taints by non-clinging. The taints or the fetters or the defilements, these are the 10 fetters. These are the 10 things that need to be eliminated. This is essentially the pollution of the mind. By eliminating these from the mind, then the mind can be free of this pollution and experience the freedom from strong feelings, eliminating discontentedness. And once you accomplish that, then the Buddha is saying, okay, by being liberated, the mind is steady. It's unshakable. It's calm. It's stable, right? It's not bouncing around from place to place. The mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content or peaceful or calm or serene, right? All those same words. So when the mind's steady and still, it's not running over here, it's not running over there, it's not longing for this or craving for that. When the mind's steady, it can be content. By being content, one is not agitated. No annoyance, no frustration, no irritation. Being unagitated, one personally attains enlightenment or nibbana, right? So when you eliminate that discontentedness, then the mind is enlightened and you'll gradually see the diminishing of that occur. Now, this is a key part because, Ali, it's interesting that you read this because one of your first questions when you joined this program you know, many weeks ago is you were asking about rebirth and did the Buddha teach that we should be reborn in order to come back into the world and help other people? Well, here's just one small place. He talks about it other places too, but here's one small place where you can see that he didn't teach to actually be reborn. He taught that once one attains enlightenment, one understands destroyed is birth, right? The holy life has been lived, meaning I've learned all these teachings. I've improved my life practice. I've trained the mind and I've attained this enlightened mental state. The holy life has been lived. No more experiencing discontentedness. The mind is no longer experiencing any unwholesome decisions leading to unwholesome results. It's only wholesome decisions leading to wholesome results. The holy life has been lived because this person has attained enlightenment. What had to be done has been done. I needed to do that training. You needed to do that training. This person has now attained enlightenment. So what they had to do has been done. They've done their work. They've applied effort and energy. They've been determined, dedicated, and diligent walking this path to enlightenment. And now, because they've attained enlightenment and there's no longer any discontentedness, there is no more for this state of existence. This being will never exist anywhere ever again once they attain enlightenment. So all misery, all despair, all sorrow, all grief, all discontentedness, all displeasure is completely eliminated. And that being gets to experience the rest of this life in that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And then when they die, they're no longer coming back to experience existence in the cycle of rebirth. 
experiencing sorrow, grief, displeasure, and despair ever again. It's completely eliminated. So that's what this one is about. And one of the things that you probably are starting to notice is how the Buddha is just an expert of layering the teachings one on top of the other. Here we start with form is impermanent, going all the way through discontentedness to non-self, to talking about the past and the future, bringing the mind into the present moment, talking about eliminating craving towards these five aggregates, talking about how the mind becomes liberated, steadied, content, unagitated, enlightened, destroyed his birth, no longer being reborn in the cycle of rebirth, and no longer experiencing existence in the cycle of rebirth. So he just walks you right through the whole logical sequence of how this occurs. Do you guys have any questions on this one? I'm not seeing any questions on Zoom, teacher. Okay, let's go to the next one then. I believe Miranda, uh, you're up for chapter 22. One who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Monks, one who is engaged is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. Consciousness monks, while standing, might stand engaged with form, based upon form, established upon form, with a sprinkling of excitement. It might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness, while standing, might stand engaged with feeling, based upon feeling, established upon feeling, with a sprinkling of excitement. It might come to growth, increase, and expansion. Or consciousness while standing might stand engaged with perception based upon perception, established upon perception with a sprinkling of excitement. It might come to growth, increase and expansion. Or consciousness while standing might stand engaged volitional formations, choices or decisions based upon volitional formations, established upon volitional formations with a sprinkling of excitement. It might come to growth, increase and expansion. Monks, Though someone might say, separated from form, separated from feeling, separated from perception, separated from volitional formations, I will make known the coming and going of consciousness, its passing away and rebirth, its growth, increase, and expansion is impossible. Monks, if a monk has abandoned desire for the form aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. If he has abandoned desire for the feeling aggregate, for the perception aggregate, for the volitional formations aggregate, for the consciousness aggregate, with the abandoning of craving, the basis is cut off. There is no support for the establishing of consciousness. When that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, the mind is liberated. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana or enlightenment. One understands destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more for this state of his existence. Okay, thank you, Miranda. All right, so what we're talking about here is once again those five aggregates. The Buddha's once again discussing those. And here we're using the word engaged versus disengaged. It may help you to just use the word clinging for engaged and non-clinging for disengaged or 
craving for engaged or non-craving for disengaged because that's what he's essentially talking about. So monks, one who is craving or clinging is unliberated, right? So one who is engaged is unliberated. One who is craving or clinging is unliberated. One who is disengaged is liberated. So one who is practicing non-clinging and has eliminated craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, clinging, all of this stuff, they are liberated. The mind is liberated. So consciousness monks, while standing, might stand engaged with form. So it might stand, the mind might stand engaged or clinging to form based upon form, established upon form with a sprinkling of excitement. That's those pleasant feelings. The mind might feel pleasant feelings like, wow, look at me. I'm so beautiful. Look at my body. Oh, my skin's looking better. My nails are looking better. It's such a good hair day, right? This is that sprinkling of excitement. And it might come to growth, increase, and expansion. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here is like if one's really engaged, really clinging or craving to their physical form, then their mind is unliberated because they're taking such a pleasure, all these pleasant feelings based on these impermanent conditions because your body is not going to experience a good hair day every day. So if we allow the mind to become excited when we have a good hair day, then when we don't have a good hair day, we're going to experience painful feelings. This is why the mind experiences pleasant feelings and painful feelings because it's basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. Or as the body ages, if we take great pleasure and excitement in how the body looks when we're youthful, then when we age, the mind is going to be discontent. Again, it's going to be experiencing painful feelings now instead of pleasant feelings. It's going to be experiencing those painful feelings associated with the aging of the body. And this is the same thing with feelings, with perceptions, with relational formations, and with consciousness itself, that if one holds on to these things, then the mind is going to experience discontentedness. So now the Buddha says in this paragraph, monks, though someone might say separated from form, meaning I've kind of distanced myself from form, I've kind of distanced myself from the feelings, I've kind of distanced myself from perceptions and volitional formations and consciousness, right? I've kind of distanced myself from it. It's passing away, it's rebirth, it's growth, it's increasing expansion is impossible, right? So if you distance yourself from holding on to the five aggregates, to form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, then the growth of these discontent feelings is impossible. You can't possibly experience discontentedness if this mind is starting to become separated from the five aggregates and realizing that you should not cling or crave or hold on to them. Then he goes on, he says, monks, if a monk has abandoned the desire, right? This is like abandoning the craving, desire, attachment, the holding on, the clinging. If they've abandoned the desire for form aggregate, for the feelings aggregate, the perceptions aggregate, the volitional formations, no longer holding on tightly to the choices and decisions that we make, 
being able to kind of go with the flow. Then the Buddha says, abandoning the craving, the basis is cut off. So meaning the foundation that's actually causing the discontentedness has been cut off. When you eliminate the craving, the holding on to things like form or feelings or your perceptions, your beliefs and your opinions, when you let go of holding on to your choices and decisions so tightly and the mind, then by eliminating that craving, desire, attachment, the basis that causes discontentedness has been cut off. There is no more support for establishing consciousness. Meaning, once craving, desire, attachment is eliminated, there's no more fuel to support a new existence. The support for establishing a new consciousness has been cut off. Not only have you eliminated discontentedness by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, but you also have eliminated the support or the fuel that would create and establish the next consciousness or the next rebirth. When that consciousness is unestablished, meaning there is no more rebirth, then that doesn't come to grow. It's non-generative. The mind is completely liberated. Again, repeating what we saw in the other chapter, being liberated, the mind steady, it's content, it's unagitated, it's attained enlightenment, destroyed his birth, the holy life's been lived, what had to be done has been done, there's no more for this state of existence. So once again, just another teaching worded in a different way, but pointing to the same thing is not holding on and clinging to these five aggregates because if you do, it's going to cause discontentedness in this life and it's going to cause rebirth. And eliminating that, the mind can then experience peacefulness, calmness, steadiness, contentedness with joy. Then you won't experience rebirth to have to come back and do it all over again multiple times as we've been doing in the past. Do you guys have any questions on this chapter? Yeah, I'm not seeing any, any questions from on Zoom, Teacher David. Okay. Chapter 23 is, is me. Right and wrong refuge. They go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to parks and tree shrines. People threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which... You gain release from all discontentedness and stress. But when, having gone to the Buddha, the teachings and the community for refuge, you see with right wisdom the Four Noble Truths. Stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way leading to the stillness of stress. That's the secure refuge then, the supreme refuge. That is the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. I really enjoy reading all the Buddhist teachings. I really enjoy this one because it really kind of hits home on a couple of things. So when people are fearful or they're threatened with danger, they might run to the forest or to the mountains or to parks or tree shrines, right? Like kind of worshiping and 
rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship when they're threatened with danger, thinking that this is going to provide some kind of safety because the mind is fearful and experiencing danger. But the Buddha says, that's not a secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you will gain release from all discontentedness. Because when you run to the mountains in the forest, okay, maybe the physical body is safe in that situation, but the ultimate problem is not the physical safety, it's the mind experiencing discontentedness. That fear, that's the real problem. That craving, desire, attachment, that's producing the fear, that's the real problem. And the mountains, the forests, the parks, the tree shines aren't going to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment from the mind to ultimately eliminate the fear. It's the fear coming into the mind that the person feels threatened and runs, right? And tries to take this refuge or find protection in the mountains, forests, parks, or tree shines. And the Buddha says, okay, you won't gain release from all discontentedness and stress that way, but... When you've gone to him as the teacher, his teachings and his community of people who can help guide you along this path for refuge or for protection of mind, you will see with right wisdom the Four Noble Truths. You can discern and understand, have the breakthrough to understand that it's the craving, desire, attachment that's causing the fear that is the real problem. And the Four Noble Truths and ultimately the Eightfold Path here, is what really truly leads to the stilling of stress, the stilling of fear, the stilling of discontentedness. So it's the protection that these teachings and the Buddha being the main teacher, the teachings themselves, and all the community that you can experience that breakthrough, learn this Eightfold Path, and experience the stilling of all the stress and other forms of discontentedness that creates the desire to even run to the mountains or the forest. That's the secure refuge, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. That's the secure refuge. That's the protection, right? That's the supreme refuge. Because once you overcome craving, desire, attachment, and the mind's peaceful, steady, unagitated, that's the refuge of all refuge. You don't have to run for protection to the mountains, the forest, the parks and the tree shrines because your mind's not fearful to begin with. That is refuge having gone to which you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. What questions do you guys have about this chapter or any comments or anything you guys would like to share? Not seeing anything uh, on this chapter. Oh, Miranda has her hand raised. Let's turn it over to Miranda. Um, it seems like this is saying that enlightenment is actually the only true refuge following the path of enlightenment. That's correct. The real true refuge that's going to fully protect the mind from this danger, from this fear that the mind has, this discontentment, is the path to enlightenment and to actually attaining it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yep. You got that right. By the way, I'll point this out because you won't see very many of them. When you see this reference that says DHP, this is the Dhammapada. Uh, there's very few of those in this book series because the vast majority of the teachings come out of what we call the sutras. Uh, 
or the discourses. The Dhammapada is a summarized version of some of the Buddhist teachings that was written by scholars about a thousand years to twelve hundred years after the Buddha's death. And it tends to be a little bit more like this, a little bit more poetic almost, because it's scholars who read the sutras and then they kind of tried to summarize the teachings in verse form. So if you're looking for this one, the DHP stands for Dhammapada, and then it's going to be verses 188 through 192, just to give you guys a heads up on that. All right, so now it looks like we're going to be going to chapter 24. Is that right, Nick? Actually, uh, there's a question on Facebook. Okay. So I'll turn it over to Bossom, and he should be the next um, reader anyway. So. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, we have a question from Amina. She says, when encountering a scary situation, what should one do to remove that fear? Earlier today, a car almost hit my family. The people in the other car were hostile instead of apologize for not following the traffic rules. And the mind became very angry. How best to let that go? Okay, so whenever discontentedness arises, which fear is discontentedness, you have to use that as the red light on the dashboard, keeping with the car analogy, as the red light. Like, okay, the mind became discontent. There's fear and there's anger, right? There's something that you're craving, desiring, attaching to that's causing that. Well, in this situation, your family, right? You're attached to your husband, to your daughter. You want to keep them permanently. Again, remember, we're not saying what's right or wrong because, of course, you love your family. You enjoy being with them. But the mind's craving permanence towards them. And you're also craving existence. Maybe you felt unsafe for yourself because there's that self there where a enlightened being in that same situation, seeing the car come at them, they are going to take corrective action to maintain safety, but their mind isn't going to become agitated as a result. Their mind is going to stay calm. That way they have access to mindfulness or awareness. They can maintain their concentration and they can use wisdom in order to apply good decision-making to resolve this impermanent situation. But when we allow the discontentedness to come into the mind because of craving, desire, attachment, now the mind's uncalm. You're not going to be able to experience mindfulness or awareness of mind. You're not going to have concentration and you're going to lack wisdom. And you might actually end up making a decision that makes the situation worse, right? So in that situation, what you've got to do is you've got to maintain your contentedness, maintain your calmness so you can have mindfulness, concentration, access your wisdom, get out of the situation. And then an enlightened being isn't going to have fear. They're not going to have anger. They're just going to see it as an impermanent situation. And now it's over. And obviously this person wasn't doing it intentionally, but even if it was intentional, you know, they're not going to allow their mind to become discontent based on the other person's wrong action and if they were actually intentionally doing it. So the way that you get rid of this is so that you don't experience this anymore is you need to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment towards your husband and your daughter. And you need to eliminate that self 
that self-preservation, that craving for existence, wanting to exist in the world. That's where that middle way is, right? You don't just stand in the middle of the road and let cars hit you, but you also don't hold on to existence so tightly that if you were to die in that moment, you would be utterly discontent. Instead, you find that middle where the mind can stay calm, mindful, concentrated, and with wisdom. And as this car is coming at you, okay, let me make some wise decisions to get out of the way and maintain safety. But maintaining your calmness and not having discontentedness is what's going to allow you to do that. Allowing fear or anger to arise in the mind only pollutes the mind. Those feelings pollute the mind and then it inhibits you from being able to have the calmness, the mindfulness, the concentration, and the wisdom. So if the mind is still experiencing some fear or anger as a result of that, then I would suggest that you just understand that that's impermanent, it's going to pass, continue with your breathing mindfulness meditation, do your loving kindness meditation, even for those people who were driving the car, and then after you get over this incident, then realize that you still have some work to do on eliminating the self, that personal existence view, and realize you still have some work to do to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment towards your husband and your daughter, and then work on that to eliminate it. And one of the ways that you can work on eliminating it is putting some distance between you and your family. This is where you might need to go away for a week or two on holiday or a couple of days over multiple periods of time to create some distance where you're not with your family all the time. Or your daughter goes and stays at a friend's house for a few days and you do that multiple times and your husband goes away so that you guys don't feel like you always have to be together, that you recognize that this time that you're together is impermanent. But then when you go away, you go away and you're separated, but that's impermanent too and you will come back together. So training the mind through meditation is great and you need that, but you also need to bring this training of eliminating the holding on by creating some separation where you guys can go away and come back and go away and come back and see that as a healthy thing, no big deal, it's impermanent, and be comfortable alone and be comfortable and content when you're with each other as well. But don't crave being together all the time because that's what's going to cause discontentedness. Okay, I think we need to go to chapter 24 now. Okay. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Monks develop concentration. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. And what does he understand as it really is? He understands as it really is. This is discontentedness. He understands as it really is. This is the cause of discontentedness. He understands as it really is. This is the elimination of discontentedness. He understands as it really is. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Monks develop concentration. A monk who is concentrated understands things as they really are. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. 
an effort should be made to understand that this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand that this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, so based on our previous study in this program, you guys probably are already understanding this one. This is the Buddha pointing to the Four Noble Truths, right? He's talking about developing concentration, which is part of the Eightfold Path. That's the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. And he says, one who develops concentration understands things as they really are, meaning you can see things very clearly, right? You understand why things are occurring in the world as they are because you can see very clearly all the craving anger and ignorance you can see all the other natural laws of existence when the mind is concentrated because you have this deep wisdom and then he points to the four noble truths as being the way to develop that concentration and develop that wisdom and being able to see very clearly the four noble truths what is discontentedness the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the path forward or the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Do you guys have questions on this chapter? Teacher David, we could say a monk who is uh, who has established right view also understands things as they really are, correct? Yes. Yeah. So here he's encouraging people to develop concentration. In, in order to develop that concentration, you would have to have right view in order to develop that concentration. So what he's saying here is, in order to develop concentration, you're going to have to understand the Four Noble Truths, which is right view. So in order to get to concentration, you're going to have to establish right view and practice all the other teachings along the full path in order to get to concentration. Understood. That's the first and the eighth step. Exactly. All right, should we go to 25? I have no more questions on Zoom. And I believe you're on for chapter 25, teacher. Yeah, I thought I would read this one because I think there's going to need to be kind of a step-by-step -step teaching here in order to help you guys understand it. If there's one chapter that kind of covers just maybe one or two topics, you guys are ideal to be able to read that, and I can kind of circle back and teach it. But when there's a chapter that almost every paragraph is kind of teaching something different, I think that it's important that I just go ahead and read it so I can teach it to you as I'm reading it. That'll help you guys. So this chapter 25 is titled Gradual Progress in These Teachings and Discipline. This is wonderful chapter for anybody who has heard or believed that the Buddha attained enlightenment in the snap of a finger or the blink of an eye or like a light switch. This is the Buddha in just one place. He says it in many places, but this is just one place where he's explaining that in order to attain enlightenment, it comes through gradual progress, that you can't just sit down under a tree and instantly attain enlightenment. This is one of the myths in Buddhist communities that the Buddha sat down under a tree and instantly attained enlightenment, when in reality, it was a six-year journey during his last life but in true reality, it was actually a journey over multiple lives. He talks about this in other parts of his teachings where he was accumulating wisdom over multiple lives to be able to lead to the wisdom that he actually taught in his last life as a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. So here it starts out, it is possible, Brahmin, and remember a Brahmin is a priest during that time 
that's involved in rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and they were in the certain class of people that commoners or ordinary people would pay them to pray on their behalf. The belief was that the ordinary person couldn't pray to the various gods. So there was this service that the Brahmin provided where they were being paid by the ordinary person to be able to pray on the behalf of the ordinary people. And the Buddha embraced these Brahmin, but at the same time, he knew what they were teaching was not the truth. So the Buddha taught the real truth while at the same time embracing these Brahmin in order to help them along the path. It is possible, Brahmin, to describe gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress in these teachings and discipline. Just as Brahmin, when a clever horse trainer obtains a fine thoroughbred colt, he first makes him get used to wearing a bit and after trains him further. So when the Tadagata obtains a person to be tamed, he first guides him thus. So the Buddha would use analogies in order to help people understand his teachings. And training a horse is something that the ordinary person would understand during his lifetime 2,500 years ago. So a fine thoroughbred colt is a really high quality male horse that is young. It's usually between one and three years old and it hasn't yet been trained how to ride yet. It's not yet comfortable having a human being on its back. It's kind of wild. So it needs to be tamed in order to allow people to sit on it or in order to pull a plow, for example. So this fine, high quality horse needs to be trained. And the Buddha says, just like we first make him wear a bit, a bit is the mouthpiece that goes in the mouth of a horse. And then it has the reins connected to it in order for the rider or the person who's on the plow or the cart to steer the horse. So the Buddha says, just like a horse trainer obtains a fine thoroughbred colt and first makes him get used to wearing this bit as kind of a first step towards his training, and then afterwards trains him further, so too when the Tathagata, or when him as the Buddha, obtains a person to be tamed, he first guides him thus. So this is his first teaching when a new student comes to him, right? This is how the Buddha starts his instruction. Come, monk, be virtuous, practice moral conduct. So this is that moral conduct of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Restrained with the restraint of these guidelines of these teachings, that's the Eightfold Path, the natural laws of existence, and all the other teachings, be perfect in conduct and determination, right? So being determined and having this good moral conduct. Stay on top of making wholesome decisions. Things like the five precepts, not killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying, taking substances that cause heedlessness. Be determined to have this perfect conduct. And seeing misery in the slightest fault. So if you just kind of slip up and steal once or lie once or have sexual misconduct once, see the misery in that, that that's going to lead to your own discontentedness. It's going to lead to harm and that harm is going to come back to you. Train by undertaking the training precepts. 
right? So the training precepts were, as an ordained practitioner, there's 10 training precepts. By the time you fully ordain, you ordain nowadays with 227 precepts. But when you kind of first start making your way into ordained life, they start you out with about 10 precepts, okay? When Brahmin, the monk is virtuous, so once they're practicing good moral conduct and seeing misery in the slightest thought, trains by undertaking the training precepts, then the Tathagata guides him further. So first the Buddha works on helping them with moral conduct, and then the Buddha trains him further. Come, monk, guard the doors of your sense bases on seeing a form with the eye, not grasping at its signs and features. Since if you were to leave the eye unguarded, evil unwholesome states of craving and displeasure might invade you. Practice the way of its restraint. Guard the eye sense base. Undertake the restraint of the eye sense base. And the Buddha talked about all the other sense bases. The sense bases are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the physical body, and the mind. There's six sense bases. So there's the five that you might have studied, and then there's the mind, which is the sixth one. When the mind is craving for pleasant feelings through the six sense bases, then if it attains those pleasant feelings, the mind's discontent. It's happy, it's excited, it's elated based on impermanent conditions. But when those impermanent conditions don't exist, the pleasant feelings are going to be gone and now it's going to experience painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation. So if we can use Amina's example, she's walking down the street feeling, you know, very pleasurable perhaps that, oh, I've got my family here. We're enjoying our walk. It's a nice day. Wow. You know, I feel good. I see things that are pleasurable. Well, this car barreling at you is a form that you see with the eye that's displeasing to the eye. And when it sees this right away, that impermanent condition of pleasant feelings of just gradually walking down the road gets crushed because now there's this fear and there's this anger that sets in, this evil, unwholesome state because of the craving, right? This displeasure invaded you, right? So the Buddha is saying, practice the way of its restraint. Guard the eye sense base. So when you're guarding the eye sense base, then you know any form that you see with the eyes, it's all impermanent. So anything that you're experiencing with the eyes and you see a certain physical form, it's all impermanent. So why grasp onto it and allow the mind to experience pleasant feelings as a result? Same thing with the ears. Anything that you're hearing, if you have nice music on or it's completely quiet and you're enjoying the peacefulness and the mind is allowed to experience pleasant feelings on hearing certain sounds or in just you know nothing, then if you allow the mind to experience those pleasant feelings, that music or that quietness is impermanent. So therefore, if you allow the mind to grasp and hold on to those pleasant feelings, based on the impermanent condition of whatever sound you're hearing or not hearing, this agreeable sound, if you allow the mind to grasp onto it, it's only a matter of time before that condition changes. And now those pleasant feelings become painful feelings. Same thing with 
odors, if you smell certain smells, either pleasant or just neutral, and you're like, ah, this is really great. I enjoy this. It's so pleasurable. Oh, I would like to just hold on to this. Well, then if you allow those pleasant feelings to arise based on this impermanent condition, it's only a matter of time before those conditions change. And now the mind's going to experience painful feelings as a result of some odor that is displeasing or disagreeable to the mind. So we could go through all of these, whether it's the flavor of the tongue, whether it's something touching the physical body, a physical object on the body, or if it's a certain mental object that the mind is experiencing. So maybe uh, you have certain loving kindness in the mind or generosity in the mind. These are mental objects. These are agreeable mental objects. You're experiencing this loving kindness and this generosity, and you're recognizing that, and you're taking great pleasure in those mental objects. Well, now it's only a matter of time before those become impermanent if you grasp onto the conditions that are creating that. And now this car barreling at you, now because the mind is invaded by this displeasure, now it's going to experience the fear and the anger. So when we're experiencing loving kindness or generosity or any kind of agreeable mental object, while we're working to make sure that is permanent through the path to enlightenment, don't grasp onto it and allow pleasant feelings to arise like, oh, wow, look at me. I'm so generous or, oh, wow, look at me. I've got so much loving kindness because there's going to be situations until you get to enlightenment where those conditions will fade. And now because of the impermanent nature of them, the mind's going to go to the painful feelings of anger or fear in this case with Mina. So the Buddha explaining this guarding of your doorways, don't allow the mind to latch on to forms, to sounds, to odors, to flavors, to physical objects or mental objects. Because if you allow the mind to latch on to these things, they're all impermanent and it's only a matter of time before disagreeable things happen as a result and now you're going to experience painful feelings. So guarding your doorways is when you're looking at a certain view, for example, if you're looking at the mountains and you've got a beautiful view in your hotel room, you've got to train the mind. This is impermanent. This is not something that the mind is going to experience permanently. I enjoy the view. Oh, it's nice. It's beautiful. Wow. Look at the mountains. Look at the sunset. But if you allow the mind to hold on to that, when you check out of the hotel room or you get a flood in that hotel room and now you're forced to check out, now you're going to be angry. That other room had such a great view. Why do we have to change rooms? Ah, right. Those unwholesome, displeasurable states are going to invade the mind. So whenever you're enjoying something through the six sense bases, which is fine, you can do that. Just don't allow the mind to cling to it and hold on to it craving permanence. Tell the mind, all of this stuff is impermanent. Enjoy it in the present moment, but don't try to cling and hold on to it, expecting that it's going to be permanent. That's how you guard your doorways. When Brahmin, the monk guards the doors of his sense bases, then the Tathagata guides him further. So we've got moral conduct or virtuous behavior on board. 
And now we've got on board guarding of the sense bases. Now the Buddha guides him further. Come, monk, be moderate in eating, reflecting wisely. You should take food neither for amusement nor for intoxication, nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness, but only for the endurance and continuation of this body, for ending discomfort, and for assisting the holy life, considering, thus I shall terminate old feelings without entertaining new feelings, and I shall be healthy and blameless, and shall live in comfort. Okay, so here the Buddha is basically saying that, you know, don't gorge on your food. Don't see that food is giving you this amusement or don't become intoxicated by the pleasantness of food or just eat food for physical beauty and attractiveness. Look at food as the only purpose for it is to sustain life, endurance and continuation of this physical body for ending the discomfort of hunger in the body, right? Food is not to please the tongue, thus please the mind. That's not what food is for. That's what we sometimes use it for when we're not practicing skillfully. But if we're practicing skillfully, then we look at this food as this is what I need in order to sustain the health of this body. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy the food, right? Here in Thailand, there's all kinds of wonderful food that we eat. Wow, it tastes great. But there's sometimes situations where the food doesn't taste so great. If the mind is clinging, grabbing, eating for amusement or for intoxication, then when you don't have those pleasurable feelings, that pleasurable taste, that all-inspiring, enjoying taste, then when you taste food that's not tasting good, the mind's going to be discontent because it's craving those pleasant feelings from that good tasting food. But when you eliminate that sensual desire of pleasing the tongue, thus pleasing the mind, now you can just eat that food, even though it's a taste you would prefer not to have, you just eat that food because it's for the continuation of the body. You see that food is just to sustain life. It's not for amusement or to please the mind or please the tongue. When Brahman, the monk, is moderate in eating, then the Tathagata guides him further. Come, be devoted to wakefulness during the day while walking back and forth and sitting. Purify your mind of obstructive states. In the first watch of the night while walking back and forth and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. In the middle watch of the night, you should lie down on the right side in the lion's pose with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and fully aware. After noting in your mind the time for arising, after arising in the third watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, purify your mind of obstructive states. Okay, so let's extract this a bit. Devoted to wakefulness means that you're not lazy to just sleep all the time and sleep all day that you're just not lounging around and just completely absorbed in sleep, right? And also devoted to wakefulness is awakening the mind and moving the mind to this enlightened mental state. That's why we call it awakening, awakening to this wisdom, right? That you're not 
allowing the mind to be sleeping or complacent. You're devoted to waking up and awakening to enlightenment. Now, the Buddha goes through these different watches. You know, during the day, while walking back and forth, sitting, purify the mind of obstructive states. So any time during your day, your daylight times, if you're noticing unwholesome thoughts arise, the Buddha is saying, purify your mind of those obstructive states. So if you see complacency come into the mind, cut that off and let it go. If laziness is coming to the mind, cut that off and let it go. Anger or fear, cut that off and let it go. Sadness, happiness, excitement, elation based on impermanent conditions, cut that off, let it go. You might have to redirect the mind. So if you're bored or lonely, redirect the mind to do something else. So purify the mind of those obstructive states. That's during the day. Now this watchfulness at night. We don't wake up three times a night the way that they must have during this time. And I imagine they were sleeping in the forest, so they probably woke up and kind of checked to make sure there's no lions, tigers, and bears around because there was a lot more of them roaming around 2,500 years ago than there are now. So they might have kind of woken up you know, throughout their night and kind of kept watch on what's going on around them. So I imagine that's what this is talking about, but we're not going to be waking up in the middle of the night, but you can at least understand what the Buddha is talking about here is essentially whenever the mind's awake, be working towards purifying the mind of these obstructive states. Now he's instructing his students to lie down in lion's pose, which is on the right side of the body with everything kind of stacked on top of each other. You don't have to do that to a teen enlightenment. Not everybody needs to permanently sleep that way. But oftentimes a Buddha will sleep that way and most often does sleep that way on the right side of their body with their legs and their arms and hands kind of stacked up. Uh, that's just the way that a, a Buddha sleeps. And now the Buddha says after rising, right? And he also says, make sure you're aware of what time to rise. And then he says, after rising, once again, be sure you're purifying your mind of obstructive state. Don't become complacent or lazy and allow these evil, unwholesome, obstructive states to penetrate the mind. As soon as you are aware of them with mindfulness, cut them off and let them go. Because the more time you allow these obstructive states to dwell in the mind, the harder it is to get rid of them. For example, when Amina's experience with her family today and she observes that fear and that anger arise, you would like to try to get rid of that as soon as possible and cut that out of the mind and let it go and just move on and be like, glad we're done with that. Let's move on. Let's go family. Let's keep enjoying our day. Let's keep going, right? And just leaving that in the past. It's over with, it's done. No reason to dwell in the past, right? And doing that with each individual thing is really important. When Brahman, the monks is devoted to wakefulness then the Tathagata guides him further. Come, monk, be possessed of mindfulness and full awareness. Act in full awareness when going forward and returning. Act in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away. Act in full awareness when flexing and extending your limbs. Act in full awareness when wearing your robes and carrying your outer robes and bowl. Act in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting. Act in full awareness when defecating and urinating. Act in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, 
waking up, talking and keeping silent, right? So this is mindfulness or awareness of mind, practicing those four foundations of mindfulness. What he's essentially talking about is training the mind to focus on one thing at a time and ensure that you have full awareness of the mind while you're sitting, while you're standing, while you're falling asleep, while you're walking, while you're extending your limbs, while you're defecating, while you're urinating. Don't be defecating and urinating while on your phone, for example. This is trying to do two things at a time and your mind can't be in two places. You can't have full awareness writing out a message or posting something on Facebook really politely using the five factors of well-spoken speech if you're also urinating and defecating. You're going to slip up. Your practice is going to falter if you're trying to defecate and urinate while talking on the phone or writing out a message. Same thing while you're eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting. If you're also watching TV or trying to talk on the phone at the same time you're doing those things, your practice is going to slip up and you're going to end up talking to somebody, not using the five factors of well-spoken speech, and now you just created some unwholesome gamma. So you have to see those slightest faults, that those slightest faults are going to result in an unwholesome outcome. So if you're talking to your life partner or your child and you're trying to eat at the same time and you're trying to hurry through this, you're going to be rough. You're going to be brash. You might be harsh in your speech. And now you've sent out that unwholesome conduct and now it's going to come back to you from your life partner or your child. So you would like to purge all of that and just focus on one thing at a time. So now the Buddha, once somebody attains the, and possesses mindfulness and full awareness, he guides them further. Come monk, make use of a secluded resting place, the forest, the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw, right? So this is kind of going to isolated places, secluded places that may even be a little bit scary. And he makes use of a secluded resting place, the forest, the root of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. On returning from his alms rounds, where they gather up food, after his meal, he sits down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect, that upper body being erect, and establishing mindfulness or awareness of mind before him, right? So this is what the Buddha is teaching him is go to a secluded place and meditate is what he's talking about here. He's talking about eating and then meditate. Now he's talking about abandoning what we call the five hindrances, which I'm going to be teaching in about one week on Sunday in our group learning program. He says, abandon sensual desires for the world. He resides with a mind free from sensual desires. He purifies his mind from sensual desires. Abandoning ill will and hatred, same thing, right? Living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. Abandoning complacency, having a willingness to have energy and effort, not just being lazy. Abandoning restlessness and worry. Restlessness is like an overactive mind. This is like anxiety. So abandoning anxiety and worry, right? He resides unagitated with a mind inwardly peaceful. He purifies his mind from restlessness and worry. 
And I'm gonna be giving you guys all the solutions of how to do this in our class a week from now. Abandoning doubt, he resides having gone beyond doubt, unconfused about wholesome states with confidence and purifies his mind from doubt, right? So doubt is doubt about the teachings, doubt about the path to enlightenment, doubt about your own ability to attain enlightenment. If you eliminate doubt, then you are unconfused about wholesome mental states. You haven't attained enlightenment yet, but you're working on eliminating doubt. Having thus abandoning these five hindrances, imperfections of the mind that weaken wisdom, distance from sense desires, distance from unwholesome mental states, he goes through the whole list of jhanas here. He talks about the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. So after the Buddha instructs him all the way, the way that the Buddha describes, ultimately the monk gets to these jhanas, experiencing equanimity and mindfulness. This is my instruction, Brahmin, to those monks who are in the higher training, whose minds have not yet attained the goal. The goal is enlightenment. Who reside aspiring to the supreme security from bondage. The supreme security from bondage is enlightenment. But these things conduce both to a peaceful residing here and now and to mindfulness and full awareness for those monks who are arahants with taints destroyed. So these things that he's talking about, all those trainings that he's discussing, he's saying they lead to peacefulness right here and right now, right? They lead to mindfulness and full awareness for those monks who are enlightened, arahants, taints destroyed, the 10 fetters have been eliminated, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden. The burden is craving, desire, attachment. That's what the burden is. You'll see this in a future teaching that if you're carrying around craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is always longing for something with a strong eagerness, always wanting the objects of its affection, but are outside of its grasp and it's always grasping for this certain objects of its affection, this is a real burden for the mind to carry around. The mind gets very tired from carrying around craving, desire, attachment. So one who's attained enlightenment has laid down the burden of craving, desire, attachment. Reach the true goal, destroyed the fetters of existence, and are completely liberated through final knowledge or wisdom. So they've attained enlightenment. Are there questions on this chapter? There are, sir. When you started describing um, uh, this chapter in the beginning, you were say, you mentioned some of the Brahma Baharas. You said uh, not to cling to those, like like loving kindness, understanding we, we are supposed to be cultivating those. Can you just um, elaborate on that a little bit further? Yeah. So no misunderstanding. Yeah. So we need to cultivate these healthy mental states. We need to develop them in the mind to the point where they're permeating in the mind and they're just always there. But the moment you cling to anything, including wholesome things, clinging meaning holding on tightly and expecting it to be permanent, the moment you do that with anything, even something wholesome, it's going to cause discontentedness because as long as there's craving, desire, attachment, clinging, expectations, wants, the mind is not going to be permanently experiencing 
peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So as you're kind of bringing loving kindness into the mind, you might have days or weeks or months where there's loving kindness. Like I know Amina really well. She's a very loving and kind person. But look, today, when that situation arose, boom, some anger came in that she probably didn't even realize was still there. Whereas if the mind is clinging and holding on to loving kindness and thinking like, wow, look at this, I've made so much progress on this path, you know, not that Amina is doing this, but, you know, look at me, I've made so much progress on this path, I'm so close to enlightenment, or I am enlightened, even convincing the mind that you are enlightened. You might go six months, a year of experiencing nothing but loving kindness. If you cling to it, when something like this occurs that Amina describes and we're using as an example today, which is great, when that bit of anger comes into the mind, then the mind can not only experience anger, but then it's going to start experiencing sadness and frustration and irritation because, you know, darn it, I thought I was enlightened, (laughs) you know, for six months or a year. I haven't been experiencing any discontentedness. I've been loving and kind to everybody, but darn it, look at this anger coming in. So not only is the mind angry, but it's also going to start experiencing sadness and frustration and irritation. So the moment you cling to anything, it's going to create discontentedness at some point. So even something like loving kindness or even enlightenment itself, you should never convince yourself that you're actually enlightened because the light's going to flicker. You're going to go through these long periods of time for a month or two or three, and then boom, you're going to get some discontentedness or a couple of hours or a couple of weeks, and boom, you're going to get some discontentedness. So if you ever convince yourself that you're enlightened, when you experience that discontentedness, then not only do you have that discontentedness to deal with, but then you're going to have discontentedness on top of discontentedness because it was craving this enlightenment or it was holding on to this loving kindness so tight. What you're describing, I'm picturing um, the enlightenment symbol, uh, one of the loops, and we're going straight, we're going up, up, we're in an upwards direction, but this is one of the loops where you take a back step. Um, I, I guess uh, we just got to stay motivated to curve back uphill. Right. If you think about the middle way as being that line in the middle, and the path to enlightenment, you're kind of always overshooting the middle. And then you kind of circle back and you kind of come back and you overshoot it again and you circle back and you overshoot it. And eventually you're narrowing in on the middle, but you're overshooting it each time. So if we're looking to cultivate loving kindness in the mind, we might overshoot that and actually start practicing it too much, right? And then when you're holding on to loving kindness and practicing it too much, your mind's not in the middle. So now it's going to swing to the other side where you can't quite find the middle and the mind kind of like a pendulum kind of swings. And when you first start on this path and the mind doesn't really have much wisdom and much training, you're making these big, long swings to each side, whether it's loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy, equanimity, right speech, right action, all of these teachings, each individual little dial, you have to dial in and the mind is swinging, making these big swings. But then over time, the mind kind of comes into the middle and it kind of and you kind of hit the middle on right speech. Boom, nailed it for the last six months or a year. You're nailing right speech. All right, that's great. But now you've got to nail all the other things too. 
loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, generosity, all the steps of the Eightfold Path. You got to dial all those things in, including your meditation practice, where you find that middle and you're not overshooting them and you're not undershooting them either. Understood. That, that, that describes it very well. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, on the wakefulness chapter, would you essentially say this is um, applying right effort towards the end? Like, don't be complacent. You know, you got to apply the right effort. Yeah, all of this stuff really comes down to right effort. I mean, and I can also say all of it comes down to mindfulness, and I can say all of it comes down to something else, right? But without right effort, nothing happens, right? Because you have to take the effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. Without that right effort in there, nothing happens. Uh, So uh, that's also connected to the enlightenment factor of energy, there's seven factors of enlightenment. And that enlightenment factor of energy is having a willingness to do something, having enthusiasm, being motivated, right? So energy and effort are together here in your practice. If you allow the mind to become complacent, then you're not really going to pick up the book. You're not going to really look. You're not going to come to class. You're not going to sit down for meditation two or three times a day. You're not going to take the effort when you're talking to your life partner, your children, your coworkers, your friends, to practice right speech. You're going to kind of be lackadaisical. You're going to kind of, you know, slip up on your practice. But when you stay diligent and dedicated to your practice, and you, even in the tough times when your mind is sleepy, or you're feeling some grumpiness, or you have a headache, or anything like that, even then, you just maintain your practice and don't allow the mind to produce any unwholesome decisions. And if that means you have to go off in a room for a couple of hours and be alone, because by eliminating contact with other people, you're not creating any unwholesome decisions, then go be alone in a room for a couple of hours. But if you can't do that, don't allow that grumpiness or that hunger or that sleepiness or anything else to put you into a situation where you're allowing complacency to now slack off your practice. Because as soon as you have that slightest misstep and you yell at your child or you are harsh with a coworker, that's coming back to you. It's going to come back to you. So you have to be diligent and dedicated, especially when the mind is experiencing some discontentedness or it's grumpy or it's hungry or it's tired because that's a time where the mind wants to slack off the most is when it's tired, when it's hungry, when it's grumpy. So you've got to make choices to either be alone and don't be around people so you're not causing any decisions that are creating unwholesome results. Or if you're going to be around people, just grin and bear it and just stay diligent on your practice and be refined and precise and ensure that none of those things that I mentioned, the grumpiness, hungriness, sleepiness, or what have you, is having you backslide from your practice. Understood, teacher. Thank you. Just under this wakefulness paragraph, Mm -hmm. mindfulness paragraph, training in singleness of mind. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, but I can give uh, some examples of myself. 
you're saying not doing two things at once, you know, like, like defecating, using the phone uh, while, while you're doing that. I've noticed, uh, not, not, not specifically that example, but uh, other examples. I've noticed the mind is very elusive. It's, it's, it's tricky. Like uh, the mind tries, like even though I know the teachings and I know only do one thing at a time. Yeah. Oh, but this nothing. You can do this the same thing. Like, until I spoke with you um, the other day on, on some examples, I realized that that that's what I'm doing. I kind of knew I was doing that, but but you know the mind at the same time is telling me not not to believe it. And, um, I kind of needed you to just confirm. Yeah, Nick, you know, stop. Just do the one thing at a time, because yeah, the mind is tricky. Remember, the mind is like a wild animal, or it's like a wild bush. It it, it doesn't want to be trained. When the wild animal sees the animal trainer coming, the animal usually runs, right? or it becomes hostile and aggressive. It doesn't want to be trained by the animal trainer. So your consciousness in the unenlightened state is very much like a wild animal. And here comes this interest to train it. And your mind's like, no, I'm not having that. You know, I'm going to have these pleasant feelings by hook or crook. I'm going to get these pleasant feelings. Who are you to tell me to sit here and just defecate? Who are you to tell me to sit here and just eat and not watch TV? Come on, we got to get things done. Let's go. Come on. Let's get this done. Let's get the pleasant feelings. But when you do that, you're giving in to that craving, desire, attachment. And you've got to be diligent. And you've got to restrain the mind and pull it back and be like, nope, we're not doing that today. Right, because that's all it is. It's a craving. Right. And the more that you do this, it becomes easier because you start seeing the benefits, right? Like right now, your mind might be craving to do two or three things at one time because that's what you're used to. But when you start stripping this stuff out and you start seeing the level of clarity and the level of wisdom that comes into the mind by being able to just do one thing at a time and being able to execute each thing perfectly where it's not causing any unwholesome results, you start valuing it. You're like, whoa, okay, I used to do two, three, four things at a time, but if somebody walked in and disturbed me, I got angry and hostile and I yelled and hollered and now my kids and my life partner are now yelling at me because I was yelling at them. But now when I just do one thing at a time and somebody walks in the door, I can just smile to them and be pleasant and say, yes, how can I help you do that one thing? And then when that's done, I can go back to my other one thing. And now I didn't cause any unwholesome results because I didn't have any unwholesome moral conduct. So if you are craving to get three, four, five, six things done and somebody steps into your day and blocks you from fulfilling those cravings, the animal comes out, right? That's the hostility. So when you strip all that stuff away and you just do things single-threadedly and then you can just do one thing at a time and you see that all this is clearing up. Wow, I'm talking more polite So my kids are talking more polite. I'm talking more polite. So my life partner's talking more polite. This whole household is starting to transition. And this is a much more peaceful environment to live in. I really like just doing one thing at a time. But the mind's not going to want to do that initially because it doesn't see those benefits yet. It's craving those pleasant feelings to maintain that craving. The example of uh, speech that you just gave, I noticed that at the um, 
at the Jiu Jitsu Academy a lot. They're all speaking uh, to me the same way I speak to them. It's, mm -hmm. That's a good example. That came up in another class earlier, too. And I was like, wow, that's happening. Yeah, that's great. That's your gamma. The way that you speak to people, they're going to speak to you that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it works. It works. It's, it's pleasant. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all saying sir and, you know, using right speech. That's because, you know, I'm doing it to them. And that's where you can see that gamma isn't this mystical, magical thing in the sky, this, you know, dark cloud that's following you around. It's based on your decisions. When you make wholesome decisions, wholesome things happen. When you make unwholesome decisions, unwholesome things happen. Well, the question becomes, what are the wholesome things and what are the unwholesome things? The Buddha is going to tell you that. All his teachings are telling you that. Right here, his teachings are saying, what's wholesome is just do one thing at a time. Because that's going to train your mind to function optimally. Right? So when you see the natural law of Gami and you understand that it's just a matter of gaining the wisdom to understand what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, and you don't believe that, you just practice it. The Buddhist teachings are telling you everything that's wholesome and everything that's unwholesome. And if you practice what he's sharing, it will produce the results. So you gradually build up your practice more and more to be fully functioning in the way that a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha functions. Because what he's describing is he's describing what he does on a daily basis. And it took him six years to build up his practice and many lifetimes to build up to that. But he did all that hard work. And now all you have to do is learn what he did. And once you learn what he did and you practice what he did, then you see the truth for yourself that, yeah, this stuff works. Right. It takes time. We're in training. Exactly. It's just like any kind of training I've noticed, you know? Yep. No matter what you're trying to accomplish in life, it's going to be a gradual progression to have any kind of career, any kind of skill, or any kind of abilities. When you first start, you're going to fumble, you're going to stumble, you're going to have a hard time, but you stick with it, and over the course of many months and years, you build up your abilities, and then it just becomes effortless and easy, right? So whatever your career is, whatever skills you have, Right now, when you execute those, they're quite easy for you because you've been doing them for a long time. But if you haven't been doing what we're talking about here by doing just one thing at a time, it's not so easy for you because your mind isn't used to that. It doesn't want to do that, right? But the more you do it and you see the value in it, then there's the propensity that your mind will be interested to do it more and more. Makes complete sense, Teacher David. Thank you so much. There are a couple questions from Holly. Oh, okay. And uh, then one... And then one from Bossom on uh, Facebook. Uh, Holly, she writes, if the goal of training is to have right speech and right action, and to do so often requires that one guard the doorways, should we not watch violent or immoral movies or listen to music with unkind lyrics? That can Will be... Act Sorry. Hinder one's that can be very helpful yeah. for you, Holly, because... Uh, what you would like to do is kind of strip out your practice so that your mind isn't influenced by certain things like that. So if you would like to let that go and not watch violent movies or the other things that you talked about, that can be really helpful for you to refine your practice that you're not putting into the mind a bunch of unwholesomeness. And then by clearing that out, it will allow you to then be able to practice based on the wholesome things that you've surrounded yourself with. That can be a very wise way to practice. She continues um, with the question, 
the main question was, will these activities hinder one's progress on the path? It can. It depends on if you allow it to influence your mind. So at one time in my life, I used to watch all that stuff and it did affect me. Then when I got going on this path, I stopped watching that stuff for quite a long time and putting that stuff in. Now I'm at the point where if something like that's on or I happen to click on a YouTube video and it happens to have a cuss word here and there, the mind's deeply trained to know like, okay, that's that person's practice. I would never use that kind of language. I'm not judging that person, looking down at them or anything like that. But seeing somebody else use unwholesome language, for example, it doesn't affect my choice because I'm, I'm so steady and so firm in my choices because I understand the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and I understand those slightest faults. So I would never use a unwholesome word, for example, like a cuss word or something. But to get to that point, yeah, I did purge that from my life for an extended period of time. So you might decide to do that. But then if you happen to click on something and it has something unwholesome, just train the mind that, okay, that's that person's decisions. I'm not going to allow that to be my decisions. Holly has another question. She writes, I do not eat meat, but there are a lot of products available that are plant-based made to have the taste and texture of meat. I recently tried jackfruit and it was so similar to pork that I did not feel good at eating it. <laughs> Would this be aversion and should I eat it anyway, even though it felt wrong? In this situation, I would say yes, Holly, because your mind has something with the sense of the tongue and there's some discontentedness there. So if you felt like it was wrong, then there was a little bit of discontentedness there. Even though it wasn't any meat, the mind was associating the taste or the texture with meat, and then it became discontent because of it. So in situations where you see the mind is discontent, it's wise to put the mind in that situation and train it to be content when it's a wholesome decision, like jackfruit. Now, if you were eating pork, for example, and you didn't like it, I wouldn't have the advice of saying, yeah, be sure you eat more pork and train the mind to be comfortable with pork because we know that's an unwholesome decision that's going to lead to unwholesome results. But in a situation like this where we know it's a wholesome decision, but the mind just isn't comfortable with that wholesome decision, yes, put the mind back in that situation repeatedly until it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with that wholesome decision. Well, we have a question on Facebook from Rash. Should one not converse with others while eating with one's family, for example? For me, you can converse while you're eating, but you have to understand what while you're eating means, okay? When the Buddha is talking about doing one thing at a time, he's talking about doing one task at a time. So if you put food in your mouth and you're chewing, now you're eating. Well, if you're eating and you're trying to talk at the same time, what happens? We all know, right? You end up spitting food out every once in a while. You choke, right? This is the unwholesome result of your unwholesome decision of trying to do two things at one time. But if you eat and you chew the food and now you're done eating in terms of that bite of food, 
and you choose to talk to your partner, your children, whoever's with you, now you talk, have conversation. Okay, now the conversation or my part of the conversation is done, now I eat again, right? So this is the skillful way to practice that if you would like to engage in conversation while the activity of eating is going on, just be sure that you're not chewing eating and trying to talk at the same time. Be sure you see those two things separately and you just do one at a time. Because if you don't, it's going to lead to unwholesome results where you choke on food or you spit food at people or other things like this. So that's what the Buddha is teaching when he's saying do one thing at a time, right? Just do one thing at a time. Okay, um, for chapter 26, we have Ali. Okay, let me, uh, in the interest of time, I would like to do this. With 26 and the rest of the chapters, do we have any questions from anybody on any of the remaining questions that you guys were, or I'm sorry, any of the remaining chapters that you guys have read and you thought about, hey, I have some questions about this. So rather than continuing to go through, because we're only halfway through, but we're pretty much at the two hour mark, I would like to see if there's any questions across any of the upcoming five chapters. Do we have any questions on the upcoming five chapters? Feel free to raise your hand if you're on Zoom. Okay, so there's no ch there's no questions coming in, right? I'm not seeing any, Teacher David. Okay, so let me see which five. I think we only have time for one. We'll let Allie read it. But let's see which one we might discuss. Because now what we're getting into, this couple of chapters, this is about the Buddha, his teaching. Okay. The Great Log, I think, would be a good one. The simile of the tortoise would be a good one. Okay. So, Ali, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to just summarize these rather than have you read this one so that we can kind of move ahead and kind of get to some of the ones that I feel are more applicable to people's life. This particular chapter 26, the simile of the young infant. This is the Buddha talking about how he trains students because we're getting into that kind of chapters where the Buddha is talking about how he trains students. Here what he's talking about is when a student is new and they're brand new, he's concerned about them and he watches over them closely. But once they've been training with him for a while, he's no longer concerned about them and he knows that they can make their decisions on their own. And he equates this to an infant. He says if there's an infant who starts choking on something, then the nurse is going to run over there, hold their head down, and hook their finger, and pull out the object in its throat, even if they have to draw blood. Because essentially the baby is unwise, and it's choking on something, and it's the nurse that has to pull out the object in the throat. But then when the baby grows up, the nurse isn't going to watch over the baby when it's you know 20 years old because it knows that it can make decisions for itself. So the Buddha says the same thing that, hey, I, I treat my students the same way that when they're young and unwise, essentially, then I watch over them and I help them and guide them a lot closer. But when they kind of been studying with me for a while, I kind of, you know, don't have the same concerns and kind of let them go forward. So that's what 26 is all about. His teaching methods. 
Then 27 is also about his teaching methods. He talks about killing his students. This is kind of an interesting one because you would think like a Buddha has all this loving kindness, this compassion, this great interest in helping all people, which they do. But you also would think that maybe a Buddha wouldn't necessarily turn a student away. But the Buddha has to find the middle as well, right? What this particular Dhamma is talking about is a horse that is being trained. And this person that he's talking to says that the way that he trains horses is he does the gentle method, he does the stern method, he does the gentle and stern method. And then if those methods don't work, then he kills his horse. And the Buddha says, I do the same thing with my students. I try the gentle method, I try the stern method, and then I try the gentle and stern method. And if those methods don't work, then I kill my students. And then the person's like, hold on a second, you can't kill your students. You know, you're not allowed to destroy life. And he's like, oh, killing students to me is choosing not to teach them, right? So essentially what the Buddha is talking about here is that he tries to work with students and he tries to help them. But if they're not putting the dedication in to improve their practice and actually learn the teachings and apply the teachings, the Buddha is going to stop teaching them because why should he keep investing, putting his time, effort, energy, and resources into a student if the student themselves aren't doing what they need to do to improve their life practice? A Buddha's goal is to help countless beings to enlightenment during their lifetime and leave the teachings in a condition that after their life that they will continue to help people. Well, to be able to have their teachings continue to help people, they have to help people attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And those people who are still around after a Buddha's death are going to be the ones who continue to help people after a Buddha's death. So if the Buddha is over here investing in somebody who's not having diligence and dedication to their own practice, then he's taking time away from these diligent students who actually are interested to learn and actually do something with the teachings that he provides them. So even a Buddha has to find the middle. He can't hold on to his students and just keep investing and investing and investing if they're not doing the work themselves. But also, he doesn't want to turn away students just because they have a little bit of complacency or a lot of complacency. He would like to encourage them and motivate them and help them to get rid of that complacency. But ultimately, after investing in this person, if they continue to be disrespectful or impolite or they don't take action to improve their practice, then eventually the Buddha is going to kill them, meaning stop teaching them, right? So that's what he's talking about here in chapter 27. And the, the methods of teaching that he uses here, the gentle method, stern method, gentle and stern, I make note in this chapter that I don't suggest you use these methods with anyone other than maybe your child, your life partner, or maybe some employees. 99.9% .9 of the time, you should be able to use the gentle method with everybody. If you choose to use the stern method, you can actually talk firmly with somebody while still practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. Stern speech doesn't mean harsh speech, right? So I can say to my son, Bailan, can you put your toys away? And then he kind of lackadaisical, doesn't do it. Bailan, can you put your toys away, right? Like I can ask him three, four, five times. 
And then eventually he gets to the point, Bailan, dad asked you, please put your toys away. I've already asked you three or four times. I need you to put those toys away so we can move on to the next thing. So I still use the five factors of well-spoken speech. I used speaking at the right time, what I said truthful, it was gentle, it was beneficial, a mind of loving kindness without blame. I just put some sternness or some firmness into my voice so he knows I'm serious, right? So you might need to do this with your child, for example, but you don't want that to become harsh where your word choice, your tone or your tempo is harsh. You would like it to be firm or stern but only after you've worked on the gentle method and tried that first, because the Buddha talks about he does that first. And then there's some students or some children or some people that might be involved in your life that you need to sometimes talk gentle with them and sometimes stern, right? But the ideal would be that 99.9% .9 of the time you use the gentle method. That's where you're going to find the best results. Uh, this next one, 28, the Tathagata is the one who shows the way. Here, this is a Brahmin who's saying to the Buddha, you know, do all your students attain enlightenment? And the Buddha's like, nope, they don't all attain enlightenment. And he's like, how come? You're the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. You're the one who's declared the path to enlightenment. Why don't all your students attain enlightenment? And then the Buddha asked the, the Brahmin some questions. He says, you know, if, if somebody comes to you and wants to go to another town and you tell them where to go and one person arrives to that town, but one person takes a bunch of wrong turns and doesn't get to that town, well, why is that? And the Brahmin says, well, I told them the way, but I'm only the guide. They're the ones who have to make the decisions of what turns to take. And the Buddha says, the same with me. I'm the guide. I'm the one who's sharing with people how to get to enlightenment. And some people are going to arrive to that if they follow the advice and guidance that I give them. But if they choose to take a wrong turn, how can I be responsible for that? Because I've given them the guidance, I've given them the advice, but those people are making their own choices and they may take a wrong turn and that's their own decisions. And then the Brahmin's like, ah, I understand, okay. So not everyone's gonna attain enlightenment who studies with a Buddha because that would be permanence, right? That doesn't exist. This one here, the simile of the great log. The Buddha's talking about uh, different things that can kind of hold you back from attaining enlightenment. And he uses this simile of the great log and a log being in a stream. And he uses this analogy frequently because the stream is meant to be kind of like the pathway to enlightenment, and the ocean is like enlightenment itself. And the stream, the water in the stream, leads to the ocean, or this path to enlightenment leads to enlightenment. And just like a log floats down the stream, it eventually gets to the ocean. So that's why we call the first stage of enlightenment a stream enterer, because once you attain that first stage of enlightenment, you've now entered the stream. The log is in the stream. It's going to get to the ocean. It's only a matter of time. There's a maximum 
of seven lives that someone would be reborn, once you become a stream enterer, your mind is not going to regress backwards. Once you enter the stream, you're going to attain enlightenment. The log is going to get to the ocean. It's just a matter of time. But of course, you would like it to be this life. So the Buddha talks about things that are going to hang up this log from getting to the ocean or hang you up from getting to enlightenment. And he says, you know, what reason do these logs get to the ocean? Well, it's because the river slants, slopes, and inclines towards the ocean. That's why these logs get to the ocean is because the river's slanting in that direction. So just like when somebody becomes a stream enterer, having eliminated those first three fetters and practicing the Eightfold Path, they're going to essentially get to enlightenment because they're leaning, they're slanting, sloping, and inclining towards enlightenment. So the things that he talks about here, he's using the analogies, and I've explained these really well, I think, in the explanations that help you to understand what each of these different things are. And he talks about getting hung up with human beings or non-human beings. He talks about inward rottenness and things of this nature. It's very descriptive and I think very helpful to help you look out for the things that are going to potentially hinder you from getting to enlightenment. So now let's go ahead and let Ali do chapter 30, the simile of the tortoise. And then we'll just finish with that one. David, if I may, mm-hmm. um, before, before we go there, uh, two, two questions arose on uh, the last chapter we went over. Okay. Um, the simile of the great log. Sure. Stream and I've, I've, I've been meaning to ask this. Seven lives maximum? What, why is it not eight? How, how is it guaranteed seven? What's, is there an explanation for this? That's what the Buddha taught. And once you see all of the other teachings, that he taught is leading to the ultimate goal and you eliminate discontentness from the mind, then you'll have no problems accepting that, okay, he was right about all this other stuff. He must be right about the seven maximum lives too. We have no way of independently confirming that necessarily, but when you see that all of his other teachings lead to the elimination of discontentness, you'll have no problems accepting that it's a maximum of seven lives for that first stage of enlightenment. Okay, and then I um, was wondering if if you can uh, elaborate on the difference between the five cores and, and the six sense bases. If you can just elaborate on that. Sure, let's go down here to... Because it's very similar and they're tied together. There's the six internal sense bases, which are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the physical body, and the mind. The external sense bases are the things that those internal sense bases experience. So it's forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. Those are the groupings, right? There's the organ itself, the internal sense base, and then there's what it experiences, which is the external sense base, right? The five chords of sensual pleasure is the craving that the mind has through the internal sense base for the external sense base. So the eyes want to see 
agreeable forms. The eye is the internal sense base. The form is the external sense base. The wanting to see, that's the cord. That's the cord of central pleasure, that craving and wanting the agreeable form. The ear is the internal sense base. The external sense base is the sound. The wanting to hear agreeable sounds, that's the cord. That's the chain. That's the cord of central pleasure. So we only have five cords of central pleasure because the mind doesn't have the cord of craving to have craving, <laughs> if that makes sense. So that's why we have five chords of sensual pleasure rather than six chords of sensual pleasure. Yes, sir. Got it. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm pleased to sit here with you guys for 10 hours, 12 hours, 100 hours and talk, but I know that you guys have certain things in your lives and I need to be sensitive to time. So when I see that we're you know, at the two-hour mark a little bit more, that's why I'm kind of moving class along to just finish up with this chapter because this particular chapter I think is really helpful, particularly since we have been talking about the six sense bases a good amount during this class. So I'm just kind of moving class along and I'll let Ali read this one so that you guys can learn from this particular chapter. The summary of the told toys. Mom, in the past, a told toys was searching for food along the bank of a river one evening. On that same evening, a jackal was also searching for food along the bank of that same river. When the Tosi see the jackal in the distance searching for food, it drew its limb and neck inside its shell and passed the time keeping still and silent. The jackal had, had also seen the Tosi in the distance searching for food, though he approached and waited close by, thinking when this tortoise, tosi, tortoise. Tortoise, mm -hmm. tortoise extend one or another of its limb or its necks, I will grab it by on the spot, pull it out, and eat it. But because the tortoise did not extend any of its limb or its neck, the jackal falling failing to, to gain access yep. to it, lost interest in it, and departed it. So too, Mom, Mara, the evil one, is constantly and continually waiting close by you, thinking, perhaps I will gain access to him through the eye, or through the ear, or through the nose, or through the tongue, or through the body, or through the mind. Therefore, Mom, reside guarding the door of the sixth sense space, having seen form with the eye, having heard a sound with the tongue, Oh, having taste, I'm sorry, having taste a flavor with a tongue, having touched physical object with the body, having recognized a medical object with the mind, 
do not grasp its sign and feature. Sense if you leave the eyes, sense space unguarded, the ear, sense space unguarded, the nose, sense space unguarded, the tongue, sense space unguarded, the body, sense space unguarded, the mind, sense space unguarded, evil and wholesome state of craving and displeasure might invade your you. Practice the way of its restraint. Guard the eye, sense space the ear sense space, the nose sense space, the tongue sense space, the body sense space, the mind sense space, undertake the restraint of the eye sense space, the ear sense space, the nose sense space, the tongue sense space, the body sense space, and the mind sense space. When, when mong, you reside guarding the door of the sixth sense space, Mara, the evil one, falling to gain access, failing, I'm sorry, failing to gain access to you, will lose interest in you and depart, just as the jackal departed from the tosis. Drawing the mind start as the tosis draw the limb into its shell, independent, not harassing other, fully extinguished a monk would not blame anyone. Okay, good. Thank you, Ali. So this is a really famous simile, the, the simile of the tortoise. There's this tortoise going along the side of the river, and there's a jackal that sees it coming, and the turtle sees the jackal too. And the tortoise, knowing that the jackal can hurt it, pulls in its limbs, and it stays protected inside the shell. Well, the tortoise is essentially you, right? this mind, this being. The jackal is representing Mara, the evil one, this evil being who is there to influence unskillful, unwholesome conduct and behavior and decisions. And essentially, the Mara, the evil one, is kind of waiting for you to extend out through one of your sense bases so it can grab onto you and cause mayhem. Or in this case, waiting for the turtle to extend its limbs so the jackal can grab it and eat it, right? So each one of the limbs of the turtle is one of the six sense bases, the head, the legs, and the tail. There's six things that the turtle kind of puts out of its shell. Well, what the Buddha is saying here is that the tortoise observing the jackal and seeing it in the distance pulls in its sense bases and guards them, doesn't allow the jackal to get access to it. And then once you do that and you're guarding your doorways, Mara leaves you. So once the mind is practicing the Eightfold Path to the point where it's able to protect the doorways to discontentedness and it gets into the first jhana, this is the one of the preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to reaching the first stage of enlightenment. Once the mind gets into the first jhana, Mara, the evil one, can't do anything to you because your wisdom and your training of the mind is so well protected that Mara can't influence you anymore at that point. Your mind has gone through too many changes and too many improvements that the mind can't be accessed by this unskillful, unwholesome evil being 
that we call Mara the evil one. Some other traditions might call this being the devil or Satan or something like that. So the Buddha is saying, protect the doorways, kind of draw them in, right? Draw in the sense bases. Don't extend out. So for example, if you post something on Facebook and somebody comments in a very negative and harsh way and you put your mind out or you put your speech out and you start commenting and talking with this person, you've extended your doorways. You're not guarding your doorways. Instead, you're engaging with this person who's already shown that they're hostile, they're aggressive, they're using unwholesome speech, they're talking negatively about you or your post. Why would you engage with that person? That's just kind of extending the mind and extending the ears if this person was speaking, right? That it's going to allow them access to the mind. Instead, when you see that unwholesomeness and that hostility, just cut it off, know that it's not going anywhere wholesome and just ignore it, right? And just move on with your day rather than sit there and get into an argument or fighting with this person. Or if you're in a situation where you're at home and your life partner or your children are maybe speaking with you in a unwholesome way, rather than allow the sound of their unwholesome speech to penetrate the ears and into the mind and you to now argue back, what the Buddha is saying is protect the doorway, guard that doorway, and don't allow somebody else's unwholesome speech to engage the mind where you now end up becoming unskillful and you start practicing wrong speech because that's not going to extinguish this unwholesome speech that's coming from your children or your life partner. If you hear unwholesome speech from them and you put more unwholesome speech out, it's just going to keep this whole thing going. Instead, when you hear something come at you, then just guard your doorway. Don't allow it to penetrate the mind. Don't allow it to affect the contentedness of the mind and just extinguish it. The other way I say this is if somebody takes a rubber ball and they bounce it, don't pick up the rubber ball when it loses energy and then you throw it and create more energy and keep it bouncing around the room. If somebody throws a rubber ball and it bounces and rolls into the corner, okay, don't pick it up. Just ignore it and just let it roll into the corner. So here the Buddha is using the turtle the way the turtle draws in its limbs to share with you, draw in the six sense bases and protect or guard those doorways. Okay. Any questions on this one before we end class? Okay. Well, with this class, I'm trying to find the middle as well. Our first class, you know, it was right around two hours, which is typically what these classes end up being. That last class and this class went a little bit longer. I try to keep it that two hour mark because that seems like where the students kind of feel comfortable. So I'm trying to find that middle with this new style of teaching. So I appreciate you guys being patient and continuing to learn and allowing me to find that middle because I think an hour, hour and a half is probably too short. Two and a half, three hours is too long. It seems like over the years that the two hour mark is just about right. So what I might need to start doing is kind of either shortening our meditation or just uh, suggest for you guys to meditate on your own before class starts. And then that way we have the full two hours to engage 
in the chapters that we're talking about. I think that might end up working. So I'm going to think that over and I'll let you guys know in the next class how we're how we're going to do that. But thank you all for joining in today's class. I appreciate that you're studying and learning and looking to gain this wisdom and applying it in your daily life. Uh, remember to keep doing your meditations, keep reading. This next uh, week, we're going to be doing chapters 31 through chapter 40. So there's 10 chapters there. And we'll come back together next Saturday and study those chapters, 31 to 40. Tomorrow, we're going to be doing in the group learning program, the frequently asked questions section of volume one. So if you would like to learn in that class, we're going to be doing that tomorrow at the same time with Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together as a group. So thank you all for joining. Thank you all for being so diligent in your practice and being dedicated to really learn the Buddhist teachings. As you see this program, we're really rolling up the sleeves and digging in even more so than the group learning program. And that's why I really think that group learning program is wonderful as a prerequisite or not a required prerequisite, but just as something to really build a foundation in order to prepare you to move into this program, be able to dive into these deeper teachings of the Buddha. And there's no harm in doing both programs at the same time. If you feel like there's still more that you would like to gain from the group learning program, go through that two, three, four, five times if you like and continue to learn there because there's always more to learn there. And then there's these classes for you to learn from as well. And you'll be progressing and you know, the group learning program is like a bachelor's or master's degree in Buddhist studies. This is like a PhD program where you're really diving in and really sinking your teeth into it and doing some independent study. Because if you have ever been around someone that has received a PhD, they actually do a lot of independent study and they just come to their teacher when they need guidance or their advisor as they're doing their research. So that's what this program is really kind of geared around. So we'll see you guys in a future class, either uh, Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. In the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.